So congratulations again. And um, congratulations for your practice. I feel very inspired <coughs> just uh, with the practice discussions and, you know, sitting up here looking out, it's an incredible view. And uh, just seeing, you know, us, us sitting together and practicing together. start with um, a little reading from Mary Oliver. She evidently dreamt this. Uh, it's like a little poem. It's called The Uses of Sorrow. So she dreamed this poem. She said, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. And it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. So we've been sitting with ourselves and um, and it's a good cook. It's a good job. It's an inside job. This um, development of the heart is, a, is an inside uh, investigation born out of our direct experience. Kabir, he speaks about direct experience when he says that there's nothing but water in the holy ponds. And I know because I've been swimming in them. He says, all the gods sculptured of water ivory, they can't say a word. I know I have been crying out to them. The sacred books of the East are nothing but words. I look through their covers one day sideways. What Kabir talks of is only what one has lived through. If you have not lived through something, it is not true. So this beckoning of living through direct experience. I very much appreciated the instructions today and the journey of the raft <laughs> to recognize, to allow, to feel, to tease out. This is inviting the direct experience of moving into what's here. It is said that the shamans of old, that they would travel with those that they attended to, to figuratively speaking, to their hells and back. And when asked how could they do this, it's because they had traveled many times into their own hells and past, their own hells and back. And so we're learning to say, stay with ourselves and that practice of the raft is inviting us in to stay with ourselves, to discover, perhaps is, um, well, we of course here in, in the teachings of the Dharma, the Buddha nature within, or as Hafiz would say, the ruby within. And it feels kind of counterintuitive, this turning into ourselves. Meditation at time, 
is akin to what I like to say, uh, like truth serum. Like walking into a hall of mirrors starring me, myself, and I. Ay, ay, ay. We see at times the good, the bad, the shame, the joy. Grace, the shame. It's all here. Many of you probably know of Rumi's poem, The Guest House, where he says, this being human is a guest house and every moment is a new arrival. And he says to welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house of all of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you out for some new delights, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door and invite them in. This is a very radical idea. Are you kidding? I want to get away from these guys. And this is often the ways of the world to get away. It's actually very haunting. Um, this reading from St. Augustine that was written in the year 399. So it's 2016 subtracted from 399 is a long time ago. And yet in the year 399, it was quoted to him saying that people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, people wonder at the huge waves of the seas, wonder at the long course of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering walking right past themselves without ever wondering. That was in the year 399. And so deep bows, really, to all of you that are uh, intentionally trying not to wander. Oh, mind wander, bring it back. What's here? And to begin to investigate what is going on underneath the hood. to recognize what's there, to allow what's there, to feel what's there, to begin to tease it out, to unpack it, to feel into it. This is inquiry. There's a perennial wisdom that's found not only in the Dharma and Buddhism, but in many spiritual and psychological, philosophical, indigenous, shamanistic, earth-based spiritualities, this teaching of turning in. Turning in. Turning in to find our hearts. St. Isaac of Nineveh, a Christian mystic in the seventh century that lived in Iraq, speaks about be at peace with your heart and heaven and earth will be at peace with you. But he says to dive into yourself, there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. It's this invitation diving into ourselves. There we will discover the stairs by which to ascend. In other words, to to learn about ourselves. And it feels to be very counterintuitive in the ways of the world. In the ways of the world, um, you know, we go and do things to get away from our pain. And sometimes, you know, that's, you know, that can be appropriate. But if that's all we did, 
You know, there's a saying that says that, you know, you can run from here to the far ends of the world and, and you will bring with you everything that you ran away from. So there's times where it may be very valuable to begin to turn in. And it feels, for many of us, counterintuitive. Feels like instead of going to a garden, we've come to a garbage dump. And it's like, this is like, you know. I used to, I lived in a monastery for many years. And um, I used to very affectionately call it a... Um, well, pardon my language, kind of like a shit accelerator. Because it's kind of like you brought up stuff. Like, who took my sandals? I left them by the door and they're at another door. Or who's got my toothpaste? So that sense of rubbing up against each other in spiritual practice and with ourselves can be intensifying. So I just want to name that and to acknowledge that. And that there is indeed a ruby buried inside here. The potentialities of deeper awakening. When we speak of awakening, speaking about developing the heart of deeper understanding and wisdom and compassion. Just to acknowledge the counterintuitiveness, there's, there's times where it feels like, well, I don't know if I want to go in that direction. I just want to feel good. This is our human desire, of course, to feel good. I remember um, <coughs> when I was 16, I grew up, I think I mentioned that in the Boston area, and we get snow. And as a new driver, at 16 years old, I was driving in winter roads and on occasion, I would get into skids, and getting into a skid in winter on ice and snow is pretty frightening, and my impulse was always, of course, to turn away. And my car would, car would just continue skidding out. And I remember telling my dad once about this, and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you got to turn into it. I thought he was crazy, but actually what I really thought was that was sounded really scary to me. There's no way I'm going to do this. So I kept on skidding out. And I kept on skidding more, turning away and skidding more. Until finally one day, I think, c actually experiencing the absolute futility of turning away from the skid, because I had done it so much, I said, well, I have nothing to lose. Let me turn it just slightly towards it. And I couldn't believe it when I turned just eensy-beensy little bit, and I could feel the momentum of my car beginning to straighten out. That, that was a profound to me. That was a revelation. And I feel in many ways that my dad kind of left me a teaching that actually is applied to so many other aspects of my life. Because it was a teaching about working with fear. And I wanted to get away from the fear because it was scary. And, and this teaching was saying, you know, turn into it. This planted some very powerful seeds inside me to begin to learn to turn and trust into the fear, into the pain, into the unacknowledged. Perhaps there I would find the heart.
this turning in is not easy, and there's a very descriptive reading from Francis Fenelon, a French Christian monk in the <coughs> 1600s. So this is written in the Middle Ages, and it actually has some really um, some Middle Age language, very descriptive language, so you'll bear with me. But he says, as the light increases, and we can say that the light is awareness, because he goes on to say, as the light increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Turning on the light of awareness and begin to see some more. And we're amazed at our form of blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> we never could have believed that we'd harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But while our faults diminish and the light by which we see them waxes brighter, we can be filled with horror. So, okay, it gets better now. <laughs> and it's a very beautiful teaching what he's offering here. He's saying, bear in mind for your comfort, bear in mind for your comfort, that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind for your comfort. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So the very beginning to see it and to know it is the beginning of some healing. Again, if we don't know, it's going to accumulate and continue the perpetuation of, of ignorance. If we know, we can begin to break the cycle. That's when the malady, when the cure begins, when we begin to know it. And it's very courageous to turn into what's here. And Jennifer Wellwood, she speaks about this very powerfully, very beautifully. It's a reflection of her own deep practice where she says, willing to experience aloneness. Willing to experience aloneness, diving into the depth of aloneness. She says, I discover connection everywhere. Diving in to face my fears. I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening, opening to my losses. I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. She says, each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. Very powerful teaching. You know, and that welcoming, easy does it. We're not saying to jump into the far end of the pool. But can I begin to dip my toes into the cold waters and dipping in and out, this pendulation, this in and out, builds acclimation. So gently, easy does it.
And it's very amazing that in these teachings, in the fourth, four foundations of mindfulness, that in the fourth foundation, which to me is a collection of teachings that point to liberation and the understandings of the Dharma. And within these collection of teachings, and Gil spoke about the hindrances uh, yesterday, that the antidote to the hindrances is these factors of awakening that begins with mindfulness that we're already introducing. Even you can say the raft is an aspect of, of that, that recognition is mindfulness. That's the first factor of awakening. And the second factor is investigation. And I love investigation. You know, I'm a type of a very curious sort of person. I want to know about things. Particularly about life. <laughs> like, what is this life? Um, I'm kind of driven by the love of truth. And... Um, I'm not sure how that evolved, but this like this love, this curiosity, I want to know what's here. So I love that quality in the Dharma of investigation. Ehipasiko, see for yourself with your own direct experience. And to me, the investigation is like an intimacy. It's like, I want to get to know you. Even if it's uncomfortable, I want to get to know you. And I think part of why I want to get to know you, that perhaps... To me, what really drives my practice more than anything else is suffering. And I want to have less suffering. <laughs> and so I really want to know all the places that I'm not seeing clearly. I'm committed to that. I want to know the places where I'm holding on or pushing away that's generated from not seeing clearly into things. So I'm really curious so I know for many of us, it's kind of bad news when we bump up against things, but I want to also say that it's also good news. Because whatever we're bumping up against is actually showing us, as one teacher would say, with terrifying clarity, exactly where it is that we're stuck, and actually where we need to really bring more attention to, because this is the gateway to possibilities. If we know that we're stuck, we can potentially eventually get ourselves unstuck. So this love of truth. This, so I think if there's anything that I want to inspire with you is to love the truth of if the places that we find in here that we may get stuck. This, this, this is not bad news. It's good news. Because it's showing us. And st stuck doesn't mean always um, I'm stuck with my anger. It might be I'm stuck with I'm not allowing myself to feel the joy that's actually here. It could be anything. So I'm very interested in where I get stuck. I'm grasping on to something. I want to keep it. Or I'm pushing it away because I don't want it. I want to understand this more, to see more clearly into these places that this happens. So you can say that these factors of awakening are allies that help us to investigate what's here. And, and they're kind of an operative of helping us to see more clearly this awareness, this mindfulness, 
this investigation that gives us energy, effort. This brings about a certain quality of joy, rapture. I'm really into it. It helps to settle the mind. We get calmer, get concentrated, and perhaps that balancing factor begins to arise of balance, that we don't get so swayed when things don't go our way. There's an understanding of the nature of change. So coming again, I want to point to this investigation of where we get caught is perhaps um, a very important aspect in our practice. And is the invitation of the raft that we can begin to recognize, to allow, to feel into that space can be very helpful. And maybe I'd like to give you a little story of that uh, some years ago. I was having a conversation with a hospital administrator about a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And through the conversation, I, I was getting increasingly irritated and um, annoyed with what was, you know, what was being said back and forth. I was getting angry. <laughs> And um, I looked at my watch and realized I had to get off the phone and drive to the hospital because um, I had to go teach a mindfulness class. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, got off the phone <laughs> and drove there and <laughs> drive there. And when I get done with this class, I'm going to call her back and really let her have it. Oh. <laughs> and. Um, so I came to the class and I invited everyone to come to the breath. It was an alumni drop-in meditation group, so it was just a sitting. And so I invited everyone to come to the breath and I went to my breath. And that lasted about three seconds. My mind wandered off. Um, you know, when I get down with this meditation, I'm going to call this person up and really let them have a oh, wandering mind come back to the breath. Well. That lasted about four other seconds, and then another strong feeling of an, uh, and, and so th this was happening repeatedly in the first few minutes. So finally realized I was really angry with some expletives. And I realized that it was actually futile to be with the breath because the number one object was anger. And so, uh, realizing that, I first recognized that there was anger there, and I allowed myself to acknowledge that this was here, and then to feel it. So I actually used this very same principles. At the time, I hadn't heard of the raft, but I did know to be aware of it, to allow it, and to really let myself experience it physically and also what's coming up emotionally and mentally, and just to let myself experience this feeling, since it was a 9.5 on the eternal Richter scale of my attention. There was no, it was futile. Resistance is futile, that's what the Borg will say. And there was no, I could not escape this feeling. And so I stayed with it and felt it, allowed it. 
this heat, this anger, this rage. And in time, it's very interesting, it kind of teased itself out without me trying to tease it out. But as I stayed with the feeling and just acknowledged it, and I had to catch myself. Sometimes it went off again. Okay, when I get done with this meditation, I'm going to really blah, blah, blah. But like, come back to the feeling. Come back to the feeling. Just feel the rage, feel the anger. And in time, that anger kind of morphed, and I began to feel this deep sadness inside. Oh, sadness. Allowing and feeling. And it was a deep sadness, and it was like this sadness, it was like this, f- this feeling was so familiar of not being understood, not being seen, not being accepted. And so I just kind of stayed with this. And gradually came, came to a place, well, what is this about somehow that I needed to get this person's approval? There's something about me wanting approval, that I was beginning to see how I, so often I leave myself for approval or recognition to be seen. By the end of that meditation, and as I drove home, I realized that there was no phone call to be made, no bridge to be burned. And actually, in recognition, the hospital administrator's conversation wasn't really too unreasonable. It had tapped a very old wound and nerve. Deep learning in that sitting that was some many years ago. So we don't know sometimes as we recognize and allow that the teasing out will often at times appear. It will begin to unhinge begin to see more clearly what was really here. So again, I'm really interested in seeing. And I think it's deeply motivated because of my own suffering and pain. I want to understand it more so that I can become more free. So what I want to speak about is um, the other day when I was uh, talking, I, I was sharing with you part of the story of the Buddha and and this shifting from absorption to vipassana or this recognition of the beginnings and endings, the impermanent nature of things, and you know, so I said this led to these profound realizations and discoverings about the nature of reality, the nature of suffering. Actually, that was the very first discovery of the Buddha, was was suffering. And I actually have written here this number of uh, Buddhist teachers that have written definitions for suffering anguish, anxiety, affliction, dissatisfaction, discomfort, discontentment, frustration, misery, sorrow, stress, suffering, uneasiness. You get the drift? Unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. 
And the Buddha penetrated and became aware of this universality that, you know, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, being separated from those that you love is suffering, being around those that you don't love at times could be suffering. <laughs> and so, um, this was a very powerful realization, this acknowledgement that there is indeed suffering. Kind of like acknowledging what we say sometimes metaphorically in our language by acknowledging the elephant that's sitting in the room that no one wants to say is there. So that's a very powerful naming about suffering. And the Buddha recognized that the suffering comes from not seeing clearly, unawareness. And because of that, that gives rise to grasping, to aversion. My teacher, Tampulu Sero, he used to say that midnight is dark and the new moon is dark and the thickness of the forest is dark but darkest of all is ignorance, is unawareness. And again, from what I was sharing before, like if you know, you can begin to break the cycle. If you don't know, you will go around and around. This is again his definition of dependent origination, Paticca Samapada. If you know, it will break. If you don't know, you'll go round and around, around the wheels of reactivity, fueled by unawareness. <coughs> Perhaps, um, actually, the teaching points that this ignorance gives rise to the craving, to aversion, perhaps the misconception that happiness can be found outside of us. You know, and I also want to acknowledge that as human beings, I would say this is a generalization, but it's probably fairly accurate that we all want to be happy and to be fed and to be safe and to be secure. No matter what political affiliation you have, I, you know, I, you know the, the lot of it, the, this, this need for feeling secure and for feeling safe. This is a human need and desire to feel safe. I loved what Gil was speaking about, about coming home, where we can feel comfortable. We want to be home. We want to feel safe. Where are we looking for this? It's interesting that the word desire in Latin it's, it's deciduous and it has its roots in uh, waiting from the stars, from the stars. It's also interesting to know that, um, you know, the hippies used to call it, we're made of stardust, but there's some actually some science behind that. That's, you know, the explosion of the stars that really build and make the, the, the cells, the atoms, the atoms that make the cells of this body. But if we live with the belief that somehow we can find happiness outside of us, we may spin around and around. I want to just acknowledge 
this desire for many of us to uh, to want to be happy. But sometimes we can get tricked with the belief that happiness can be found outside. And of course, there are so many things in this world that do make us feel good. And perhaps this is the root of addiction because it makes you feel so good. And you want more. I also want to say that desire is not really necessarily considered from Buddhist psychology to be morally wrong, but that it's simply a cause of suffering. And why? Because desire or craving keeps you wanting what you what you can't have. It's this very operational, you know, it keeps you wanting what you can't have. So desire, from the dictionary, a strong feeling of wanting something, to have something, to wish for something to happen. The wanting and wishing, food, sex, money, fame, power. It's yearning, it's craving, it's hungering for, it's thirsting for, coveting, lusting. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Desire. Says in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than greed or desire, this grasping. There's no ice colder than hatred and no fog thicker than ignorance. Due to perhaps at times the misconception, the belief that happiness can be found outside of us, this gives rise to this grasping, this unease. So to me, one of the powerful realizations of the Buddha was this discovery of the causes of suffering. And particularly for me, this is very, very, personally very important. Because I, I guess I always kind of reasoned that if we could understand the cause, then maybe I could uh, become less enslaved by it, more free of it. And Achen Amaro, an English Thai monk, some of you I think of course know of him, he gives one of the most beautiful renderings of the translation from the Buddha on the cause of suffering, and I'd like to share this with you. He says, this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody know that one? Compelling and intoxicating. And this causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. And namely, this is the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, the craving to feel nothing. So I'd like to um, unpack this a bit. So this craving for sensual delight, what does that mean? like the eros, it's the libidinal, it's this desire, this instinct to feel good. As I mentioned, of course, it can be in many different things, from food, and sex, shopping. You know, Amazon is very clever. I don't work for Amazon. But one click, you got it. It's like bingo. Instant little rush. Desire. It makes us feel good. It fills with endorphins. I want more. 
Remember once, I know some of you have heard this, but eating my favorite tofuti ice cream, vegan. And I was just like in the land of just, oh, I don't know, ecstasy. <laughs> I was at one with the ice cream and everything was just wonderful. I was in the land of satiation and then I realized it was one bite left. And I could see my mood begin to change, like dark skies coming in, and I began to feel with myself, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I, I, I saw that. I, there was sadness. And then I thought, I'll get another bowl. <laughs> I see you, Mara. <laughs> and um, so there it was. But I, I wanted to study it. What was so good about that ice cream? I was at one, I, I, was, in, I was home, I was happy, I was in satiation. But the thing is, is somehow this belief that this ice cream makes me happy. Or whatever it is. The thousands of things there are. But in the end, what arises passes away. So I can still eat ice cream and enjoy it, but I also may know and begin to understand it's not going to be the key to my Nibbana, to my happiness. But we can get caught in this. Because life is it's like this, but we believe it'll be happy, but it doesn't last. And there's a, a Blackfoot uh, chief, Native American, Crowfoot, this is his last words he said before he died. He says, what is life? It's like a flash of a firefly in the night. It is like the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is like a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself into the sunset. This desire can get us caught Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps on spinning out. So I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe. But one day I noticed the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> this goes on for a long time. So perhaps, um, you know, I'm a little irreverent, but I, I, I feel like there's a theme song to, to the sensual craving and it's by the Rolling Stones. I just can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much I try and I try and I try, I just can't get no satisfaction. Yeah. The craving of essential delight with the belief somehow that I can get my happiness outside of me through these sensual beliefs, desires. And then there's the craving to be something, to be someone. We can call this narcissism, the superego. This is I, I, I. I'm special. I'm Bob. I drive a Prius. I teach at Insight Retreat Center. I, I, I. Somehow this belief of inflation, deflation. There may be a thing with this sense of wanting to be someone that's here to impress you, but deep down, I need your validation. 
I need your approval. I need your acknowledgement for the worthwhileness of me as a human being. This insidious place inside us that wants to be seen, to be known. At the same time, it's very important in developmentally that we are seen and loved and nourished by our parents. Very important. But if somehow maybe we didn't get that and somehow we get it intertwined with, well, what I do is who I am and now I'm an important person because I have this type of salary or this type of position or this type of whatever. It's like dependent upon approval from others to define who it is that I am. It's very embarrassing. Some years ago, I, I, I like to communicate sometimes with Facebook and I think I wrote something and and um, you know in Facebook world like people write they check off click like well I noticed one day I, I got 199 and then I saw this desire in me I wanted 200 <laughs> I wanted to bag it I wanted 200 and then I began I looked at it like what is this if I get that 200 is that gonna like really do it for me <laughs> I wanted it Who's this I? What is it that's wanted? If I get that, what will it really bring me this lasting happiness? It's so funny that the insecurities of my own heart and mind at times. How many times if we left ourselves looking for approval, recognition elsewhere? It's a very powerful teaching, this craving to be someone and to begin to look at how that plays itself out in life as looking for approval and recognition outside of ourselves. That's why the Buddha discovered the Buddha nature within, the awakening nature that, that uh, knows for oneself. But again, it's really important developmentally that we have this sense of self, and this is why um, John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Myla, they wrote a very beautiful parenting book called Everyday Blessings. And in it they speak about three different qualities to nourish your child. And the first is acceptance, the second is, is um, empathy, and the third is to honor their sovereignty. And at first I was like, what does it mean, sovereignty? But sovereignty is a very beautiful quality. And how they describe it is that, you know, when a baby comes out in the world, they are just so full of themselves. As a matter of fact, they could be sitting on the stage here right now and totally poop <laughs> in front of all of you, and they could care less. Because they're just so, that's, that's what they, like, they're, they're sovereign. If they want to yell, they yell. If they're happy, they laugh. They're full of themselves. And then, of course, we raise our kids and you know, we got to help them out. It's not exactly the most politest thing to be pooping up hair and, you know, and, and, you know, at times we get shamed. We're made to feel less than. And it hurts. The shaming hurts. We find other ways in desperation to try to be seen, to be known, to be loved. So, that sense of sovereignty is so important and maybe perhaps part of our practice is to, to, to discover you know, when maybe sovereignty is the Buddha nature again, the, the power of the, our own connection with the universe. 
this craving to be someone can be insidious. Particularly if we have this belief that something outside of me is what makes me whole once again. So, yep, there's another theme song. Country Weston. I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. So the last one is the craving to feel nothing. Thanatos. Annihilation. The death instinct. Rooted in the belief that uh, maybe my pain can go away if I'm just not here. It's kind of like the ostrich. It doesn't work, though. Numbing, drugs, alcohol, getting lost. In so many ways we can get lost. The internet technology is a really big one. Just get like I hear all the time. I just got on and like hours just went by. I don't know where I was. Getting lost in all types of things. Puzzles, crosswords, games. Thousands of ways to not be here. Not that we can't enjoy these things, but it's good to know what are we using them for. I, I didn't relate much to this particular aspect, the craving to feel nothing. I definitely could see myself in the craving to be someone, the craving for sensual delight, but then I had a very powerful teaching personally some years ago when my son was... Um, not well, and he was going through tests, and there was a possibility that he had uh, cancer. It ended up that he had mono, which I can, I'm very grateful for. During that time um, that he was ill, I was actually teaching a meditation retreat for a few days, and I noticed that every time after I taught, I would immediately go back to my room and get in my bed and go to sleep. I was doing this all the time. And then I'd wake up, I'd be okay for one second till the overwhelming feeling of like, oh, what, what? So there's like no escape that I couldn't get away. And then I began, to, oh, this is what the Buddha's talking about. This wanting to feel nothing. And I, I, I really, f I, I, that's, I, I wanted to just sleep. I did not want to feel this. Oh. And then I began to see so many different places in my life where I turn off that I just don't want to feel. And... And I, so it was very, it became very powerful for me to recognize how that played it out in my own life, this craving to push away, to not feel anything. So, yeah, another theme song, Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. I also want to acknowledge that all these cravings, of course, are intertwined. They're all part of us being human. And again, I think that these cravings are here, you know, we, we, there's a belief that somehow something outside of us can give us this sense of 
happiness and peace, or as Gil said earlier, the sense of being at home. But where is home? Where is home? Even sometimes when I have looked at my own like sexual learnings, desires, I inevitably come back into my mother's womb. It says maybe it's that sense of not wanting to feel, just to be in this warm, wet environment that I don't have to have any responsibility for anything. But what happens as a human being is eventually you get too big. And you either get pushed out or you get cut open and pulled out. Really, you think about that. That is unbelievable what happened to all of us. We were in this womb and everything was maybe peachy, rosy, creamy. I don't know. I have some brief impressions of that. But then there's this point, too big, we come out. And that powerful moment, I, I just really, I get goosebumps every time I feel about it, like that powerful moment when the scissors cut the cord and we became separated. It's a huge moment in our lives. That cord is cut. And perhaps this life is like, how do we come back home again? And is it to be found inside or outside, and here we are, that cord is cut, and we're in this incarnation as a human being. We begin to realize this aging illness and death. What, what, what is this? What is this? So when the cord's cut, the longing perhaps for home begins again. This is our practice, to find our way back home. And perhaps we begin to discover that these cravings outside of ourselves, born out of not seeing clearly, gives rise to that perpetuation of, of suffering. And it's interesting, when we are feeling connected, the suffering often leaves us. We've all experienced at times moments where we felt connected. And Paul Simon, he sings in a song, You Think Too Much. Have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just sunny and everything was just funny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? These are moments that we feel that sense of connection to ourselves, to the world, to the universe. The sense of belong, it's like our human nature to belong, to feel connected, to be at home. But where are we to discover this? So we're here, sitting inside ourselves, investigating. Sometimes it's felt that, oh, you know, it's going to be a long time till I can experience that. Maybe, maybe not. My teacher, Temple Lucero, used to offer a wonderful teaching practice. <clears throat> we'll end with this. He called it Raga Kine, Doda Kine, Moha Kine. 
and this was actually the very last teaching that he taught while he was here in the United States. And when he returned back to Burma, he died a little while after that. And <coughs> he would share that this is actually a really good practice to die with. And it's also a practice that gives us a taste of freedom. And so I'd like to just end with this, that maybe sometimes we think, oh, this freedom is far away, but maybe momentarily we can experience it in the here and now. And so sitting in a place that you can feel comfortable and awake, if you want to reposition for a moment, please feel free to do so. And so this will be a reflection that, um, that we'll do along with the breath. And so as we breathe in and breathe out, just experiencing for these few breaths as you breathe in that there's no greed arising within you and as you breathe out there's no greed. So just giving a taste of that just for this moment. You don't need anything else. In this moment, breathing in and breathing out, no greed. And continuing with the breath in and out, and this time Experiencing what it's like that there's no hatred, there's no aversion, there's no not wanting. Just experiencing this in the now. No hatred, breathing in and breathing out. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Continuing with the breath in and out. That in these moments, there's no ignorance. And so we can actually experience this opposite when there's the falling away of greed. In its place rises contentment and ease. So just in these moments, there's no need for anything else. Contented and with ease as you breathe in and out. And as you breathe in and out, the opposite of no hatred is the open heart of compassion, loving kindness. Breathing this in and out. And then breathing in and out, instead of ignorance, this clarity this clear seeing, this understanding of the falling away of grasping, 
or greed or hatred gives wisdom. Breathing in and out clarity and wisdom born out of this understanding. The falling of greed, the falling of hatred. Clarity of mind and heart. These are the teachings of all of the Buddhists to purify the mind and the heart, the lessening and gradual eradication of greed, hatred, and ignorance, contentment, open-heartedness, and clarity. And this is for us to experience, and even momentarily in these moments we can experience this taste of freedom. As our practice grows, more will come. Thank you for your attention and hearts. May all beings be at peace.